the story of history as told in God's word to us, the Bible, the book, the book of books. God's very word to us about what we need to know and how we can know him and where we're headed and the hope that we can have. Right. The story is the it starts in Genesis one with all things. God, God. There's no explanation for how he is. He just is. He's the only necessary being. And then he makes he speaks all things into into creation and he makes all things good. And then with astonishing celerity, with astonishing speed. The crown of his creation, the only creatures made in his image, man and woman, distrust him, choose the word of the enemy to believe the word of the enemy over his word, uh, rebel against him, essentially seek to be on the throne of the cosmos instead of him, and sever relationship from him, and, and they die on the inside in the process of death begins ineluctably to in them uh, to work its way out uh, from them in, in the, to all creation. Uh, and, and the rest of the scriptures, the rest of the Bible is uh, the story of how God is um, taking care of that problem, <laughs> taking care of that cosmic problem. Um, and he he does it as he does everything in a, in a surprising way. He does it with a single person. He's, the Bible starts with with this broad scope of all creation, and then fairly quickly it narrows within twelve chapters to to one man, whom God takes out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of Babylon, modern day Iraq, and says, "Go to a place I'm going to show you. Leave everything you know." And, and through you, even though you don't have any kids yet, you're 75, through you, I'm going to make a people as numerous as the heavens, and I'm going to bless every family of the earth, every family of the earth, every type of family that is, from every nation that are heaven, I'm going to bless through you. And essentially, he's giving him the promise of, he's saying, I'm going to re- restore creation through you and through a people that I'm going to bring from your own loins, and I'm going to give you a place. Right. It's astonishing, an astonishing promise that he gives to a man named Abram. And um, most of you listening, if not all of you, will know the rest of the story. And if you don't go to Genesis 12 and and keep reading, um, God makes good on his promise. And that through the seed, uh, the Messiah, that makes all the promises that God God gives to his people come true. uh, Jesus Christ, who comes from from Abram. Uh, through the tribe of, of Judah, which is um, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons, and his fourth son is Judah. And Jesus comes from that tribe, the kingly tribe. So, but backing up, um, he he puts Israel, once you focus in on Abram and, and then the people that start to grow from him that are going to bless the whole earth, God puts them, he's constantly putting them in precarious situations that force Israel to trust him. And one of the things that he does, he does that. He, prom- he promises to make them a people and to give them a place. And the place that he gives them is um, the land of Canaan. And that strip on the southeastern edge of the Mediterranean. And uh, where we have Palestine and, and Israel today, um, Judea, Samaria. And 
he gives them so part of the way that he makes them uh depend on him is 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 through the place that he puts them in he surrounds them and you see this all throughout the old testament he surrounds them with much larger nations and he puts them at the crossroads of the world that mediterranean strip right there there connects all i mean the major continents it connects uh europe and africa and asia it's the nexus point really of the earth it's the it's the sort of belly button of the earth the navel of the earth i think it's been called that many times in literature actually um he puts them at the crossroads of the earth where all the major nations connect and it makes it makes israel a very strategic place where you basically have to cross through israel to get to any other place in that ancient world and because of that it's also a very dangerous place right especially cuz israel's a tiny a tiny nation god says through the prophets i chose you not because you're the greatest but on the contrary because you were you were nothing i actually made you a people out of one man who is as good as dead and you're still small and i put you in this place that's extremely vulnerable you're surrounded by you're surrounded by the hittites the egyptians the babylonians the assyrians you know you have the mesopotamians the the persians all these nations uh, later the greeks and the romans um surround this tiny nation at the crossroads of the world and um it does two things it makes israel extremely reliant uh, on the lord for protection and it also it does more than two things but two things at least the other thing it does is it it it's a very strategic place through which cuz what is israel supposed to be a hoarder of the good news of who god is and his plan for the rest- restoration of all things no israel's to be a light on a hill israel's to be a people that show forth the excellencies of god to the world not not a not a lamp under a bushel but rather a people that show every nation under heaven this is who god is and this is what he how he wants us to thrive and to live abundantly and come see our god and come share and they there to be an exporter of the good news of god and his plan for the world which ultimately culminates in jesus christ and uh the best place to do that is at the crossroads of the world from there the every all this news can be exported you know we have the internet today and all that stuff we don't need roads we don't need geographical positions as much back then there was no, none of that stuff there were no telephones no no internet and so um geographical position was everything and you know uh G, gk chesterton who was a contemporary of cs lewis about 20 years older writes uh, amazingly in his book um the everlasting man which if you haven't read it read it uh he just writes wonderfully about this truth and about the fact that not only sort of geographically but also time-wise not only space-wise but time-wise um and and Paul mentions this just briefly briefly in that compact phrase in Galatians is it 4 where it says in the fullness of time God sent forth his son born of woman born under the law to redeem those under the law who have been held held in captivity all their lives um at the right time right in the fullness of time so not only is is Israel the right place for the for the messiah to come and to die for us in our place and then to rise to a new sort of life that's going to that's going to begin the process of of the restoration of all things and that message will be exported by Paul and others in the early church to from that crossroads of the world easily through the system of roman roads to um to the rest of the known world but also the timing is perfect 
the timing is sort of the crossroads of the world. And, and that's what Chesterton talks about. He says, look, if you study ancient history at all before Jesus, you realize, you know, the, you look at the Punic Wars, the sec, I think it's the second Punic Wars, uh, the second Punic War in particular, if my history serves, which it probably doesn't, but the, uh, the Carthaginians, you know, under Hannibal, that great general, they were fierce. They were a North African people and they were fierce and they were into dark magic and child sacrifice. The Greeks um, fought against the Carthaginians and the Greeks, um, man, I am really messing up here. It was the Romans, sorry. The Romans fought fought against the Carthaginians in Italy, not Greece. And um, um, sorry about that. The um, I'm trying to think of the name of the, the Roman general. It's escaping me right now. But um, the the Romans beat the Carthaginian, Carthaginians narrowly, but they do. They they beat the Carthaginians and they end up through that Punic victory. Um, uh, Scipio Africanus, I think, was the name of the general, by the way, the Roman general who beat, who ended up beating, beating out Hannibal. Um, and because of that, the Romans take over. And yes, the Romans are, you know, they crush revolt, et cetera, but they, they also, in a sense, allow that they allow peoples to, 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 like they allow the Jews to worship the Jewish God in the temple, et cetera. And there was, there was oppression, but probably nothing like there would have been under the Carthaginians. And they, um, they have a system of laws and roads uh, that allow for the spread of the gospel. And um, it was a much different world in the ancient Near East because the Romans won. And the timing was was perfect and because the Romans, the Romans, um, they spread their law and their military and their and their roads, their sort of infrastructure, which they are famous for. But the Greeks who had come before them through Alexander had infiltrated Roman culture and art, et cetera, and language. And so Latin was spoken, the Roman language, but also Greek. And uh, and Greek culture had spread. That's called Hellenization. And so uh, Greek was the perfect language, whereas Hebrew was the perfect language uh, for God's preparation of, of, of the world to receive the Christ and the gospel. Um. Greek was the perfect language to express that gospel once Christ had come. And, and that's all because of, of everything that God had orchestrated from Greece to Rome, um, beating, beating Carthage um, and pervading the, the ancient Near East, the Mediterranean Rim at the time that the Christ, in the fullness of time that the Christ was born. And um, by the time that, you know, a generation or less after his resurrection, the really from from day one of the resurrection, the gospel started to go out, as you read about in the book of the book of Acts through um, it was disseminated through the Greek language that was spoken. Uh, and then the scriptures, the New Testament was it was the scriptures were completed in Greek and, and and wonderfully so with the richness of the Greek and the precision of the Greek language that Paul was able to utilize to express the, the wonderful things that God has done for us in Christ, and the way that he saved us. But also the Roman roads and through the Roman roads and system of laws and the empire that Rome had had cobbled together, had built, uh, there was safety and there and, and borders were able to be crossed. Um, and, and even Paul himself was a Roman citizen, which gave its own benefits, which, I, which actually we see some of today, actually quite a bit of today in our lesson. We're looking at Acts 25 and it's been a long wind up here. 
Um, it's actually hopefully going to be a shorter message. It's, it's kind of a one pointer, but, uh, partly because this, this, uh, Acts 25 is the wind up that Paul gives. It's really the wind up that Luke is giving before Paul releases the pitch in Acts 26, where he is giving his third and final, um, sort of testimony of how he came to Christ and wrapped up in that is, Hey, I encountered Christ and here is the good news of Jesus, of the fact that God has become one of us and has died in our place and has risen. Uh, we have the hope of the resurrection and let me tell it to you. It's the third time in Acts that Luke gives this testimony of Paul before unbelievers. He does it here before Festus and Agrippa and it's the fullest, his fullest exposition, makes most detailed exposition of the gospel. But that's, that's in, that's next week. That's Acts 26. This week, we just kind of have the, the sort of context that gives us who's, who's hearing Paul, who's gathering, um, what are the details of why Paul, why Paul has been held, why he's been arrested, what's happening now. Okay. So, but my point is, um, we really see here, and I'll try to make this plain in the next few minutes. We really see here that Paul is, he knows he's going to Rome. He's right now in Caesarea in Acts 25. He's in Caesarea. It's on the coast, um, northwest of Jerusalem, um, on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean. And he's been held there for over two years because of Felix. I've been to Caesarea. It's still a beautiful, ruined place. It must have been very beautiful in its day. It's, it's, it was kind of a seaside resort. Paul's been there for two years. Um, he knows he's heading to Rome. He's He's been clapped in irons and, and kept there um, because the Jews have these charges against him that really are bogus. Uh, but Felix kept him, we're told, in Acts 25, that, or end of Acts 24, I'm not sure, that, that Felix kept him in prison as a favor to the Jews. So he's just kind of sitting there. Um, capital, capital punishment hasn't been invoked yet, thank God. Uh, but there's been no movement either. And so... Um, there's talk of sending Paul back to Jerusalem, getting this thing going again. Like we got to do something about this Paul guy. And there's talk of sending him back to Jerusalem, but Paul pleads his rights and says, no, I want to go to Rome. So as a Roman citizen, he has the right, which is actually a sixth century old right. Um, it was when Rome was still a Republic in 509, when, when this right began, it was, it was a right to appeal to the people. Uh, but, but it's changed now that Rome is an empire ruled by emperors. Um, it's changed to to be able to appeal as a Roman citizen to Caesar and to have him hear your trial. Again, Rome is famous for her laws. We see a lot of that here. He's given fair trials over and over again, whereas before the Jews, he would have simply been uh, probably misconstrued, misrepresented, and executed. Um, but the but the Jews under Roman the Roman Aegis cannot execute a man like Paul without Roman um, without Roman say so. And you see that with with Jesus and his sham trial and Pilate's permission for the Jews to to crucify him. And of course, crucifixion was a Roman execution, not Jewish. Um, and so similar things are happening here with Paul. My point is, Paul, he had a habit in um, in his journeys of going to major cities around the Mediterranean Rim. There's a reason for that. He was strategic. He was strategic in planting the gospel, in preaching the gospel, in teaching the gospel, in making disciples, in planting churches. He did it in places where the gospel could grow and go forth easily out from the major arteries where lots of people were. He never minded. In fact, quite the contrary. He liked speaking to influential people. 
um, because he understood that that if they if they saw the light of God in the face of Jesus Christ and the beauty and the freedom of the gospel and, and were born again, that could and would have a huge impact. Um, and so Paul, he was in Jerusalem. He had been going around the Mediterranean rim to key cities on his three missionary journeys. And now he'd gone back to Jerusalem, been arrested, taken to Caesarea. And he's been told by Jesus himself that he will go to Rome and he must preach the gospel in Rome just as he had preached it in Jerusalem. So he knows he's going there, but he doesn't just sit back on his laurels and say, well, I know I'm going to get there. Jesus has told me himself. And so I don't need to do anything. No, he's, we talked about this last week. He's availed himself of insider information given by his nephew. He's gotten a cohort to get, he's, there was a cohort that got together through this information that escorted him safely, um, kept the Jews from murdering him uh, down to Caesarea. And now he is, um, He's appealing to Caesar because he knows he's not going to get a fair trial in Jerusalem, less, less likely to. So instead of saying, well, God told me um, I'm going to make it to Rome, I'm not worried about where I'm tried, he doesn't do that. He appeals to Caesar. He uses his rights. He uses his mind. He uses the things that have been set up. He's strategic, and, he's, and he, is, he wants to get to Rome because Rome is a strategic city. And indeed, he will get there, and he will spend two-plus years there receiving visitors, making disciples, training up the church, teaching um, Paul, because he is a follower of the most strategic being in the universe, uh, because Christ ever strategic is in him, he, uh, he, he is, he operates strategically and his press, his appeal to Caesar is a press to get to Rome. And that press is evidence of the fact that he, he cares about strategy just as his God does. And so we see that here. Um, the context is is interesting um, just to kind of take a step back before maybe making a couple points and then, and then sort of getting into a, a, a denouement and a close. Um, the context, again, I've sort of touched on it, but Felix is retired. Felix is the one that originally heard Paul, you know, basically caught the implications of the gospel, probably believed it, assented to it mentally and saw that it was true, knew a fair amount about Judaism, was married to a Jewess. Uh, but for you refuse to submit his life. There's a huge difference between knowing about Jesus and, and mentally assenting to the truths of the gospel and surrendering your, surrendering your life to Christ and giving your life to him as Lord and savior. The, um, the first does nothing except to, except that you'll be judged against it one day. Um, it didn't change Felix at all. It just, it just meant that he, he was more accountable. He'll be more accountable when he stands before the judge. Um, the second changes everything. The second will change your life forever, your eternal destiny. Um, and it'll change you from the inside out. And so Felix steps away. He's replaced by a guy named Festus, another F. And Festus just knows a lot less about Judaism and therefore about Paul's case. And he thinks, um, and here's the, here's the kicker, and here's how I'm tying all this in. <clears throat> Festus really just thinks that this is a, a sort of backwater religious squabble about Jewish religious issues and legal issues. And of course, in, in Judaism, religious and legal issues are of, of one. They're of the same cloth um, because the religion was the law, etc. Um, the law was was the heart of um, of, of of the Jewish scriptures. Um, and I and I don't mean by that it was do this, do that. That's not at all. That's not not at all what the Old Testament is. The Old Testament is God's a story of God's provision for His people, His making of people for Himself, His promises to them, His faithfulness. And his covenant that's all fulfilled in Christ Jesus and points us to Jesus. I'm not saying that, but the law 
is a, is a, is a huge part of that. Right. And so, um, but Festus knows very little about these things. And so he thinks that he, he, in Paul appealing to Caesar, he now has to send Paul to Rome, but he can't, he has has to write a letter and say, here's, here's what this prisoner has been charged with. He doesn't even know enough to be able to write a coherent letter. Um, and so that's where he brings in Agrippa. Agrippa, Festus has been recently appointed. Agrippa's coming. Agrippa's the grandson of Herod the Great, who um, had all the Hebrew babies um, killed in Jesus that were two and under in Bethlehem and around Bethlehem and Jesus and Joseph and Mary had to flee, therefore, to, to Egypt to escape death. Um, that was that Herod who also built the temple for the Jewish people, the temple complex. Um, magnificent. <clears throat> Took 46 years to build. And so that that's where he got the grade. He was he was a he was a severe and violent and murderous man. He also had some great public works. And so that was that was um, Agrippa's grandfather. So Agrippa knows a lot more. He he's got some he's in charge of some properties that are sort of up north of the Sea of Galilee. And he um, he comes down to Festus to congratulate him. And Festus says, perfect. I've got this guy, Paul, I know very little about. I don't even know enough to write a letter to Caesar. He's appealed to Caesar. i got to send him there. Help me. Let's, let's, let's let Paul tell us again about why he's been locked up, about what his, what his obsession with this Jesus of Nazareth is. And, and so in chapter 26, Paul unleashes. And he's really speaking, especially to Agrippa, who knows um, a lot more about Judaism and, and the way Christianity. And he... Uh, he rips the gospel, man. He just lets it flow. It's awesome. So we'll get to that next week. But um, so Agrippa comes in and Agrippa, he, he brings along his his uh, half sister, Bernice. She's she's kind of his uh, his faithful companion here, his best bud. Bernice was given to her uncle in marriage, which is yuck. Uh, he had died at this point, and so she's living with her brother Agrippa, and there are rumors that their relationship was an incestuous uh, double yuck. Uh, but whether or not that's the case, she's with him. So it's it's Agrippa and Bernice visiting Festus. And, and so here Paul is, and the point is that Festus is under the false impression that this is just a, a, a small backwater religious Jewish matter. And, and he couldn't be more wrong. And there's so many today that think that about Christianity. It's just a a Western thing or it's just a white thing or I mean which of course both are dead wrong, right? It was neither a white nor a Western thing where it started and now it's now it's global. Um it has cosmic implications. If indeed God came to live among us and died on a Roman cross in our place to to finish the sin problem, to take care of the sin problem. To, to break the back of death and to start um, a life, a new creation that will never end, that's untouched by sin and death and Satan and hell, then it's indeed the farthest thing from a small backwater religious issue. It's cosmic and it's there's nothing bigger, right? There's nothing bigger. Um, and that's, that's, that's the case here. Um, and that's what we see. We see this picture of, and, and, and Luke really, gives this to us in some detail at the end of this chapter, uh, Acts 25. But of Paul chained up, and there's one, if I can find it here, there's one quote of Paul given that talks about, it kind of gives you a picture of, of, a, of, of the man. According to tradition, he was 
only a little fellow and un and unprepossessing in appearance, balding, with beetle brows, hooked nose, and bandy legs, yet full of grace. Um, now, I can't read the rest of the quote for some reason, but um, he stands there in chains with this, having been locked up for two years, um, apparently powerless, in front of Festus, the governor of the province of Judea and Agrippa, the great grandson of the great man Herod or the grandson of the great man Herod. And, and, and Luke goes to some pains to describe that they come in pomp and ceremony and all their gowns and their jewelry and their crowns with their entourage to have this man in chains, bandy legged stand before them. Uh, and to talk to them about this seemingly small religious dispute that he's been seemingly pointlessly held in Caesarea for two two plus years for. And, but the reality is that we're still talking about Paul, the greatest missionary on the face of the planet, 2,000 years later. And the church is still growing and still preaching the gospel that Paul preached, that he unveiled and unpacked and unfurled before in chains before these these men and women who seemed great at the time but nobody knows who they are now they've been forgotten but paul's not been forgotten because he had an eternal message to proclaim that had cosmic implications that changes everything and so it was actually uh, the situation was actually a direct reverse, directly opposite what Agrippa and Festus, certainly Festus, thought it was. We are great if we go with God, <clears throat> if we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and offer it to anyone who will listen. And if we if we attach, if we hook our lodestar to Jesus, to God in Christ into the, the the wonder of what he's done and we hold that forth for people say look jesus god has taken care of the sin problem we had this huge we're born represented by our first parents adam and eve who rebelled against god we're born selfish we're born proud we're born self-centered we don't have to teach a kid to say no or mine or to be selfish it's just natural because we're born dead on arrival And we stand guilty before before God. We we are made to, we were made to love God and to revolve around him and to give him all of our heart, mind, and strength and to love others around us as we love ourselves, to care for them with the attention that we care for ourselves and with the energy. And we don't. We don't. We've been thoroughly corrupted and we're born dead on arrival. We're born opposed to God and wanting wanting to be on the throne ourselves. But Jesus came to change that, and he took our sin upon him, and he became our sin on that cross. And he paid the price for it that we should have paid, but which would forever separate us from God. And he was somehow separated from God, his Father, and abandoned um, on that cross. And he had the white-hot wrath of God poured out on him, in our place, and he became the fall guy. He became the sin sacrifice. 
and he said it is finished as one of his last words on the cross, which means the debt has been paid in full by anyone who will hide in me by faith. And his resurrection proves that that debt was paid in full. His resurrection proves that um, that, that death couldn't hold him anymore because the price, because death is a result of sin, and sin had been fully paid for, and so death couldn't hold him. He was free to go, and because he was free to go, if we believe on him, he's our representative. Where he goes, we go. His resurrection, as Paul says in this next chapter, Acts 26, Paul says he was the first to rise. That, that The implication there is that just as he rose, so will we. So will we. So, um, Death doesn't have the last word. If death is, has the last word, then nothing matters. It doesn't matter how much you feel, how much beauty there is in the world, how much meaning, how wonderful a song is or a relationship or a love affair or, or a sunset or whatever, how much a book means or your life's work. None of it matters. If a heat death is the end and you're dust and that's it, and that's the end of the story, and there is no resurrection from the dead, then nothing matters. Certain, least of all, my talking. So Christianity is not true. Nothing matters. If it is true, everything matters and everything depends on it. And it's the biggest news that there is. And it's the best news that there is. And that's that's what we see in this wind up here with Paul. That's what we see. Um, and just, you know, as Paul was this picture before the perceived great ones in their pomp and, and ceremony, um, he stood there small, but actually great, because he had a great message to proclaim. Um, and so, in even greater measure, Jesus, who was small, who became small and despised as God himself, crucified on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem, um, made fun of, forgotten, died an ignominious, shameful death. But from that point where he said it is finished, was buried, rested on uh, the next day on the Sabbath, then on the early morning of, of the first day of the week, the tomb was empty. He rose. Light shined out of darkness and a new creation began, a second creation, with the second man, the second Adam, Jesus, as the first of a whole new type of humanity. Um, from that very, very perceptibly small event on the cross, which wasn't small at all, right, um, has come this atom bomb explosion of power that will recreate the worlds. That's the message that we have to proclaim. And, um, you know, I guess just in getting real practical, Paul was so, God, I mean, in line with what God did through his people, Israel and through his son, the true Israel of God, Jesus, was super strategic in his timing and in his in his placement. Right. Um, and Paul was the same way. He preached in key cities. He planted churches and made disciples in key cities. We live in a key city. We live in a global city. It's one of the key cities in America and in the world. Um, support city. It's super international. We live in the Galleria, which is extremely international. Um, maybe the most international spot or one of them on planet Earth. And you see the, the arc of history moves from the country to the city. We start The, the Bible starts in the garden and it ends in a city. Um, as the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven, 
uh, to earth and, and God reigns. Jesus, the God man reigns in person <clears throat> and the gates are open and the nations and the kings come in and out of it. And uh, that's where we're headed. So that's that's why history is headed. Uh, the, the key to the key to uh, the 21st century is the city. The key to history moving forward is the city. And so that's where Christians ought to be. Uh, we are, and you know, I, I almost say we ought not to be moving out to the suburbs. You know, the country is wonderful. It's God's as well. It's a great place of rest. Um, but there's a tendency if you seek if you seek leisure and rest, and you think that's what life's about, to head out of the bustling city where where the where the genius is, but also where the trouble and the tumult is. Um, to head out to the suburbs, to head out to the country. It's fine to have a country. It can be fine to have a country home a real blessing. Uh, it can be fine to move to the suburbs. It can be fine. But I, but I, this is an encouragement as Paul did for us to be in the middle of things. And we in the Galleria are as sojourn family of churches. We feel called to the city for these reasons. We feel called to where the people are as Tim Keller's friend, old friend said to him once, uh, and he's repeated it many times in his sermons. Um, God, loves people more than plants. Uh, God loves the city more than the country because he loves people more than plants. And there are more people um, in the city and there are more plants in the country. And so God loves plants, obviously he made them. He made all things good, but but people are who he came to redeem. And through our redemption will come the redemption of all creation. And all creation is groaning and waiting for the redemption of the sons of men. And so it is our it is ours to preach the gospel to every man, woman, and child that we come into contact with to own this geography, to inhabit it and to hold forth the best news there is. And so this is a strategic place at a strategic time in history where we could be the first generation truly in the hist- in history ever to see every tribe and tongue hear the gospel, have it articulated, have it written in the scriptures, have the scriptures in their heart language. We could actually be the first for that to happen. Things are on, um, are timed for that to be happening. And we want to be, we want to be part of that. We want to be in that. So God bless you all. We're following in, in Paul's footsteps uh, as we preach the gospel and as we live here. And, um, we are looking forward to, uh, unpacking the, uh, Paul's greatest articulation in acts of the gospel next week. Take care.